I'm sitting here, Mr. Cook, toying with the idea of removing your heart and stuffing it like an owl. I have something to tell you. No, 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 let me tell you first. On the parapet of the Emmanuel Baptist Church, facing the street, someone had angled a loudspeaker between two stones. It was unmistakable. He stood looking up at the tower for what could have been minutes, his limbs locked, stopped short. His instinct was to catch the eye of someone else on the street, to see if they recognized what he saw. But, mid-morning, the street was empty. The tower, like something along the outer wall of a fortress, rose up two stories from the main entrance. Its stained-glass windows had been replaced with plywood ten, fifteen years ago, when the Baptists closed the church and moved uptown. The no-parking-during-church-activity sign was meaningless now, as were the recycling bins. They remained year after year and made the loudspeaker, which must have gone up in the twenty-four hours since his last morning walk, jump out. On his way home, he remembered the time he saw a taxi driver kneeling over a rug outside of Papa John's. Would this be the taxi driver's mosque? he wondered. Sitting at his kitchen table and surrounded by books, he spent the afternoon posting to the page of a neighborhood group. He described what he saw at the church. He asked for any information about new congregations in the area. And with sources, he explained the history of the Adon, amplified five times a day across the Middle East and now apparently here. The cable company had given him a four-hour window the next morning. Over breakfast, he read through all the comments people made on his post. Then he stacked up his books, cleaned the kitchen. One of the stones in his walkway never fit right. He went out with a spade and worked to adjust it, and a garbled, electric voice bounced between the brick walls of the neighborhood and reached him. He knew not to be frightened, that it was only the PA at the baseball diamond, but still he was frightened. If the words had been in Arabic, they would have sounded the same. He told himself the cable company probably wouldn't come in the next few minutes, and it wouldn't be a long walk. He just wanted to confirm that everything was quiet where it should be. A bungee cord kept the loudspeaker upright, white against a blue sky. He tipped the hook on the waist-high metal fence and scraped it against the path. Going up the steps, he felt self-conscious, either from his reflection in the doors or the possibility of there being someone on the other side of it. Inside was only blackness. He pushed the bar but found it locked. All the same, he tried again at the side of the building, where they used to take in canned goods, and at the back, where there was still a playset of rusted metal bars. The grass around the swings, he noticed now, was short, evenly short. It could have been the old owners, he thought, coming back to mow the grass, but then it could have been the new. He would have time at the end of the week to ask at City Hall about new owners. He stayed up later and later the next few nights. The night it rained, he had been on his laptop for hours, and his eyes ached. He brought them up to the window, misted and blurring the streetlights, and it made him think to check the weather before he went out. Between two and three in the morning, the wind would pick up, but it wouldn't pour. On his walk to Emmanuel, he watched cats crisscrossing the street to lie under different cars. Noise pollution was only the beginning, he thought. He would post that, that the pollution would broaden, to schools, to courts, radiating out from right here, this church, the trees cleared at the intersection, revealing the tower. The loudspeaker was not there. Hoping he only needed to change his angle to make it reappear, he jogged across the street, but even from the gate he couldn't see it. The wind could have knocked it down, he thought, 
It never looked secure. He felt increasingly confident it was lying amongst tools and buckets on the gravel roof, and he wanted to check. He put one foot on a stone jutting out from the arch around the doors and his other foot on a window ledge. A floodlight came on at the front of the church, and the irregular stones cast shadows, telling him where he could maneuver to next. In a few wide steps, he was above the door. His shirt came untucked. His pants were close to tearing. His hands would bruise, he thought, and along with the first appearance of sweat on his forehead came doubt. Taking one hand off a light fixture and grabbing onto a gutter, his arm trembled. One foot slipped. In his effort to bring it back, the other slipped as well. His fingers tightened, but the gutter was weak. It bent, and he swung onto his back. It was so quiet in the neighborhood. A freight train at the bottom of the hill. A car, but not close. Hanging. What frightened him most was seeing the neighborhood as the muezzin wanted it to be seen. One community cemented, held up and together by the amplified sway of his call to prayer. There was a ledge he could use, to his right, if he could somehow swing himself. He pointed his foot and contorted his chest, but missed, and stepped onto the AC unit instead, which couldn't take his weight, and snapped. His feet hit the stoop first, then his hands and knees. They hurt most when he moved them, so he held still on all fours. Waiting for his eyes to focus on the brick, he thought there was still no reason to believe the loudspeaker hadn't just been knocked back by the wind. The substitute teacher, who must have been from somewhere else, asked how many of us knew how to ride a bicycle. We laughed. The question seemed so stupid, so embarrassing, and easier to ask than to answer. The truth was, very few kids learned how to ride bikes, maybe five for every hundred kids. We knew a few things about why, things passed down from older siblings, heard in the neighborhood, and things we seemed to know instinctually. First off, buying a bicycle for a child was considered an extravagance. We all had nice houses, two-car garages, and annual skiing trips. None of us were hurting. But still, a bicycle? Most parents just thought there were better things to spend money on. We also knew that not everybody was talented enough to ride a bicycle. Not everybody was born with that ability. Riding a bike looked impressive. It looked fun. How could it be special if it wasn't rare? For most of us, admitting that we probably could not ride a bicycle was the first acknowledgement of our own limitations. It was the first step we took towards learning that things could still be okay, even if we couldn't do everything we wanted to. These thoughts sometimes took a darker turn, of course, and if ever a kid wanted to feel bad about himself, all he had to do was wait around the neighborhood for someone to pass by on a bike. To cheer himself up, he just went back to thinking his parents didn't want to buy a bike. We sometimes went quickly back and forth between reasons. Feeling confident and realistic, we admitted our limitations, and on a bad day, when our limitations seemed like enemies, we retreated and told ourselves we definitely could ride a bike if only a bike was put in front of us. Destiny, as a concept, quieted these thoughts, and it's the thing we found hardest to explain to the substitute teacher. For most of us, riding a bicycle was just not in the cards, whether because of money or talent, we weren't exactly sure. But it was enough to know that lives had shapes, and they couldn't all look the same. A coworker says, Did the storms wake you up last night? And everyone has a good long conversation about it. But when I say, 
Did the trains derailing and piling up by the river wake you up last night? No one says a thing. The people who slept through the night look at me with suspicion. They think I'm making something up. We might miss a storm, they think, but never an accident like that. And the ones who woke up frightened in the night are silent now because they think I know something, and it frightens them again. They try and remember, and they second-guess the bangs and clashes they heard after midnight, wondering now if a hundred percent of them were really thunder.' 